Alright, Romans 1, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it twice because it's short. It's the opening to a letter. Let's remember that the Bible, while it is our sacred word, the second half of it is often made of mail. <laughs> You're reading someone else's mail. The Bible was made for us, it was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. Let's say that again. The Bible was written for us. The Bible was not written to us. What I mean by that is obviously the Bible is for us, and it's God's sacred breath of God breathed on inspired word. But Paul did not have you 2,000 years in mind when he was writing it. He didn't stop to say, well, how would I explain this to someone 2,000 years from now? He was writing to the Romans. And the Romans then took this mail and copied it and passed it around until finally it became the inspired word along with much of everything else Paul wrote. So with that being said, we've got to remember we need context and we need to understand Romans as a letter written to some people if we're going to read it appropriately. I'm going to read out of the ESV tonight. You can read whatever translation you would like, but if it helps you to be in the same translation, feel free to use English Standard Version. Totally up to you. Uh, Paul's writing the letter. This is how he starts. Seven verses. I'll read it once, and then I'll read it another time, so you have a moment to just soak it in. And I want you to be thinking, questions, observations. What comes up to you as you go through that? What would you like to point out to the rest of us? So, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that once more. Take in observations. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, for an introduction in a letter, that's pretty dense. Uh, I myself, like, I was like, do I really need to preach on an introduction? Like, hey guys, how you doing? Yeah, I feel like I do, because Paul says so much in those seven verses. But I couldn't decide what to focus in on, because there's a lot here. Part of the reason there's a lot here is because he's setting the tone for everything he's going to get into throughout Romans. 
This is not the only time he's going to say these weird things. He's going to elaborate on it as he goes along. So, as we read it twice, or as you read it on your phone or in your Bibles, what stood out to you? What was an observation you made? What was a question you had? Um, as my teachers always force my children to ask every assignment. Well, I already forgot the question. What was it, Jody? What do you notice? What do you wonder? Come on, kindergartners, help me out here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a servant of Christ. That's how he starts the letter. Actually, it's a little more intense than that. Is anybody else using a different translation? Tyler? Yeah, slave. Slave, yeah. Which, which translation? NASB. Yeah, NASB uses slave, which is actually, you know, in ancient times, that would more or less be what a servant is. In the ESV, they were trying to blanket the entire Bible. Here's our word. Are we choosing servant or slave? They chose servant in this case, which is probably not the greatest choice because Paul is in some way just humiliated himself from the get-go. As we all know, being a slave is not like a empowering or happy or good thing. And yet Paul starts his letter that obedient to Christ to introduce himself to the church in Rome as, hi, I'm a slave. I didn't have to say that. I didn't have to introduce myself like that. But that is how obedient I want to be to God. Whatever his will is, I will do it. And so Paul is willing to humiliate himself from the get-go, use a phrase that most people would not use to describe who he is and why he's indebted to Jesus. So that's a great observation. What else? Yeah, so Paul is speaking it out and a scribe is writing it down. You would wonder until you get all the way to the end and then the scribe just interjects. <laughs> I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. You're like, I thought Paul wrote this. And Paul's dictating. But I feel like, so. I feel like Paul is the first person in the first half. First, I give that. Yeah, well, it, if the first sentence is him saying, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, if he's introducing himself there, it would probably be him. Actually, the lingo he's using, I would say, is definitely Paul, because it's so in-depth of everything he's going to get into throughout the rest of the letter. But you could you could say, if you want. <laughs> yeah, you could be there, Rob. What else? What stands out to you? What do you see? What do you wonder? Thank you. Thank you. I was afraid no one would catch that. So this was part of the reason I wanted to use the ESV tonight is because one thing that they did consider doing was reflecting the fact that in the Greek, Paul wrote one sentence right here. <laughs> Verses 1 through 7 are one sentence. This must be where C.S. Lewis got all of his run-on sentences from. But he just like, there's commas, 
I don't know what it is in the Greek, but like the scholars who have written on this are just like, this is really complicated Greek. Like he doesn't he doesn't breathe; it just keeps going, and so it's uh, it's interesting. And I think the reason that that's actually important to point out, Janae, is because when you write a letter, how do you start? Yeah, that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, you're like, here's me, here's you. Dear person, hey, this is Jamin. How are you? You know, like, and Paul does that. We could have actually just skipped. This is what we could have done. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. An editor might have made Paul do that. (laughs) Hey, I took your first sentence and your last sentence and just put them into one spot. So why then... Why did Paul think it was so important to write three paragraphs as one sentence, as his introduction as to who he is? Anybody got any ideas? Proving his authority. Proving his authority. He does do that. He calls attention to the fact that he's an apostle, which some people seem to like to challenge throughout the Bible since he wasn't one of the original 12. What else? Why might he write this whole thing? So a Roman church would listen to him. Yep, he's got to have the authority if uh, if they're going to think that his words matter. So he can say a what? So you read at least a sentence of his word. So you read at least a sentence of his word. Yeah, I'll force you to read uh, half of a whole paragraph as one sentence. Um, I think it shows just how important all the information that he put into this is. When he introduces himself, he finds it crucial to introduce the entire gospel. <laughs> like you, you have to, you have to understand from the get-go. I am introducing myself in the light of the gospel. What is the gospel? Paul often calls it my gospel, my gospel, the gospel I preach to you, because uh, he wants people to like, like he. He, uh, this gospel has become so much of his life that it's, you know, he identifies himself in it, and it identifies himself in him. His gospel is written out here. The gospel. That's a word we use all the time, right? But we also use it willy-nilly. Like, that's gospel truth. Like, okay, but what does that mean? Or Hercules, right? That's the gospel truth, right? Like, okay, that's Greek mythology. How did that just become gospel? Like, is, we use that word however we want. But here, Paul defines what the gospel is. The gospel of God. Gospel means good news. The good news of God. What's the good news of God? What's so important that Paul has to write it as a part of who he is in his introduction? It's the fact that the king has arrived. That the prophet said that one day, David would have a descendant who would become the king of the world who would reign immortally, would reign forever. Nothing would ever leave his sight, that the kingdom of God would come. The people that Paul is writing to, these Romans, if they're Jewish, they are in exile. They were promised maybe 500 years ago, I think, that though God was sending them into exile for their sins, God would come back for them one day. And the, the prophets said it would be 70 years. And it didn't take 70 years. You know what that's like. Jesus said he'd be back in 70 years. 
uh, 2,000 years later, right? Sometimes prophecies move a lot slower. The way that you feel right now, like, where is Jesus? Why does he not come back? Why is he late? That's how they felt then. Where's the Messiah? When's he going to come? Why is he late? Originally, the prophet said he'd be here in 70 years, that we'd be exiled for just one generation. That was it. But then another prophet came along after those 70 years, and they're like, where is it? Where is he? It's been 70 years. And that prophet's like, uh, it's actually more like 70 times 7 years. <laughs> oh, that's a lot longer. That's a little bit of an oversight. you know. And finally, the Messiah shows up in Jesus. Someone who a lot of people missed. Paul himself missed Jesus. Paul himself was persecuting the Christians. He didn't like them. He thought that they were ruining the Jewish faith. They were tainting it. They were, bringing, they were going to bring more judgment on Israel because they were a cult. And so Paul's going around trying to get rid of these good news people who have proclaimed that the, the, the Messiah that was prophesied 500 years ago, that suddenly he was here. Yeah, right, says Paul. And then Jesus shows up to Paul, knocks him off his high horse, literally, and blinds him, and Paul becomes a Christian. And now instead of persecuting Christians, he's the one who's getting persecuted as a Christian. On behalf of what? The fact that he believes that the gospel, that the good news, that the Messiah that was prophesied about in the prophets a long time ago has finally come. And his heart burns for his Jewish brothers and sisters to know it because he wants them to experience salvation. But God has also put a special calling on his life to go to the people who aren't Jewish and tell them about Jesus as well. He says right there in the opening that he's, a, he's called, he's an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, for the good news of God. And so when he introduces himself, as Janae pointed out, as a slave, he then explains what he's enslaved to. His king, who loves him, and has called him, given him a letter. That's what apostle means. A lot of times when we hear the word apostle, we're just like, ah, oh, it's just a Christianese word. What does that mean? I don't know. Apostle means sent out. You've given news and you're sent out. That's, that's an apostle. The King Jesus meets Paul, knocks him off his high horse, tells him the good news, tells him it's true, and then sends him out to go tell everyone else. Hence the run-on sentence. Paul wants to explain who Jesus is, what the good news is. Jesus is descended from David, just as the prophets said he would be, but he's not just human. God himself has declared that this is his son, by doing something that has never happened before. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's the firstborn of the dead, the Bible says. Which means if he's the firstborn, guess who's second, third, fourth, fifth? You. Yes. Us Christians. We're, we're the secondborn. Jesus did it first. We will do it later when he comes back. And so here you find uh, uh, Paul explaining everything that's crucial to the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is King. We are to follow Him. He's not just human. He's the Son of God. And this has been declared to us through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Holiness is how he says it here. It's an interesting way. The Holy Spirit has raised Jesus from the dead. 
And that's going to become another important ingredient as Paul goes on later. He's going to talk about, like, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, then you're not saved. You're not going to heaven. For Paul, the Holy Spirit is central to resurrection. You do not get the resurrected body unless you have the Holy Spirit who does the resurrection. And we see that as soon as Romans 1, where he says that Jesus was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, what else? Anything stick out to anybody? So if you couldn't hear that, Paul talks about reaching all the nations, which is his specific call in his life. While he would love to reach his Jewish brothers and sisters and does, Paul often refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. That's his specific calling on his life. Just like if one pastor might feel called to urban ministry. Not just ministry, but urban. You know, like specific call within that. Just like you might feel called to do something that's in your life, which is another thing we should point out here. Paul also calls Christians called. I get tired of the church mentality that like pastors and ministers are the ones who are called. <laughs> the Bible's perspective is that if you are a Christian, you are called. If you're a Christian, you're called in, sent out, that identity is on you. So if you're like, oh, I'm just an average, I just work in a in an admin office. No, you are called in life as a Christian. And the positions wherever you find yourself in, whether it be in your house or at work, where you play, those are all moments where the calling is already on you. Uh, okay, what else? Yeah, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. God loves them. Such a simple statement, and yet, like, the truth that we're always dying for. Now, I, I even just had that conversation with someone yesterday at a retreat center. We were praying for each other. To paraphrase more or less what I was getting at, I was like, I need to, I need to understand not even understand. I just need to know better the love of God on my life. If you're like me, you're someone who can get really down on yourself, bring in a lot of hatred on yourself, and and then take all of that self-hatred and then throw it on God and be like, you must feel the same way about me. But right here, we have just a simple statement right from the get-go. What has to belong in the run-on seven-verse sentence? The love of God. Crucial. You want the Messiah? You want the King? Well, then you have to have the love of God. And the rest of that sentence, too, uh, who are loved by God and called to be saints. I've talked about this before, but I love that word, saints. I don't think of, what do you think of when you think of saints? Let's see if it's the same thing I think of. 
Anybody? Was it? Catholic. Catholic, yep. And the saints within the Catholic religion are saints because... Set apart. They've done miraculous things. And they've lived, like, very very perfect lives at least to us on the outside the saints would disagree with us and they beat themselves up way too much but yeah they've they've lived really good lives things like that those are the kind of things i think about when i think about saints i don't i don't love that pretty much all translations use the word saints here because the literal translation of this word hagios is holy ones to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be holy ones. Part of the reason I I love that word is because it has some other overtones and undertones to it. And I've talked about this before, but in the Old Testament, there are holy ones. Does anyone remember what those are? Spiritual beings. They're angels. Uh, They're beings of heaven. And Paul has this idea, because Paul is focused so much on resurrection, I think it makes sense to me that Paul, when he calls us holy ones, not saints, but holy ones, he's not just thinking of us as living holy lives or consecrated or set apart, living good, aiming for perfection, things like that. But he's also thinking of resurrection. You are the replacement plan for the fallen spiritual beings of heaven. The old holy ones of the Old Testament, holy ones again can be an angelic, spiritual being of heaven. The old holy ones that have fallen and are corrupt will be done away with. And you, the Christians in Rome and all Christians across the world, you are the new holy ones that will replace them. The immortal ones will die like men, as Psalm 82 says. And the Christian story is that men will live like the immortal ones. And women. I'm using men as a blanket term. Sorry. I got yelled at for that on Twitter the other day, so I'm learning. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was just one thing I want to throw in there. Okay. We've looked pretty close at this. Is there anything else anybody wants to call out before we wrap up? When, when, did, when he talked about to bring about the obedience of the faith, Thank you. it makes me think like what were they doing wrong, maybe? Mm-hmm. And, and then when it goes on to say, for the sake of his name among all the nations, was what they were maybe not, or what they were doing wrong, reflecting badly mm-hmm. upon, you know, becoming yeah. Christians and maybe getting on top of the spread of the good news. Yeah. So that's a great question. I would... So to some extent, we know that they're doing things not great because the Jews want the Gentiles to get circumcised among many other things. And Paul's writing to them, be like, no, 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 we don't need to do that to them anymore. God has let this go. And the reason that he believes that God has let this go is because Abraham, before he was circumcised, he was obedient to God through faith. So he's going to make the argument that it's faith that saves us. But the Roman church, I mean, compared to the Corinthian church, <laughs> when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, like, dude, you got to stop sleeping with your stepmom and doing these other things, you know. I just can't believe the ruckus that has come out of this place. Fun fact, 2 Corinthians, 
uh, scholars have pointed out, the way that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians com- uh, compared to 1 Corinthians, he sounds like he's like a burnt out pastor. <laughs> like he just is, we did this once, now we're doing it again, no one's listening to me. So like there's, there's a certain tone difference between the two letters. The Corinthians though, he calls them out quite a bit. The Romans, he actually goes on to tell them, verse 8, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness. Uh, and then he goes on. He does this again later where he says, I'm really happy <laughs> with the way you guys have been showing the world who Jesus is. So, so I don't think he's bummed with them. But I think when he uses the term obedience of faith, he's really uh, honing in on one of the major things that he's going to continue to get in. Again, this is the first seven verses, run-on sentence, preview as to what we're going to get into. Obedience of faith. He's going to spend forever on faith, right? This is the famous like book of the Bible that is all about you are saved by faith, you're justified by faith. Faith, 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 faith. And that's something I can't wait to get into. I'm still trying to understand it better myself, but I've seen that verse abused and it drives me nuts. And I want to pay attention that Marie just called this out right at the beginning. When Paul talks about faith at the beginning, what does he say? The obedience of faith. We treat faith like if I think a certain way, I get into heaven. That's, that's all faith is. But if we're looking at all of Paul's words, like, yes, what I think is important, crucial. I don't get into heaven without believing that Jesus is God and resurrection and all that. But when he says what faith is, he mentions it's also obedience. It's as though the two words have to go together. Someone who is faithful is obedient. Someone who is obedient is faithful. And there's other ways to translate the Greek here, too. If we wanted, you could do... uh, uh, what was it? The faithfulness of obedience or something like that, which is like another way that would feel similar to that. But either way, I just, I call attention to that. I get real tired of the Christianity that's just like, I think a certain way I'm good, I don't care about anything. Paul, in context already, I am faithful, I am obedient, these two things cannot be separated If they were separated, am I really faithful? If they were separated, am I really obedient? Um, And we'll see more of that. I probably didn't answer your question, but... Well, it's more like, you know, when I see that obedience of faith, what does that mean? Yeah, we're all going to have a lot of those questions as we go throughout this. But I would... My... I've just come to the conclusion, those two words are so closely knit together, it's one thing. The obedience of faith is faithfulness and obedience. As to what Paul fully meant, I guess we'll have to ask him when we get there. Or you can look up lots of other commentaries that would give you different ideas. Um, John left his commentary on that. It's pretty uh, spot on. Yeah. So John Wesley's commentary, check that one out. Uh, Even the word that we translate saved by faith uh, that word is pistis, and it can actually be translated also as like faithfulness. So like there's this like, we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus. He's the one who's faithful, and he's faith 
fullness, which is different than thinking. That's also action. So, again, we'll, we'll see more of that as we go on. We hop into the faith conversation very quickly. Uh, but, yeah, I just want to take a minute and just go through those seven verses. Does anybody else have any other questions while we wrap up here? All right. I've already held you over just a few minutes, so let me pray for you and let you go. God, we thank you for um, we thank you for the book of Romans. It's dense, it's complicated, it's confusing. Uh, but we, I just pray uh, over all of our minds here, myself included, would you begin to show us what Paul was getting at? This is your divine inspired word. You know the answers. Uh, and we can struggle with them, but we'd like to be as clear as we can. So help us out and uh, show us your way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd really like to get a taste of uh, the Bible Project in conjunction with what we just talked about, two videos on YouTube from the Bible Project on Romans. Between the two of them, it's 18 minutes summarizing the whole view of Romans. It's going to help you out as we keep moving forward. So go watch that. And if you want to be a part of the NAPS group or my group when we launch in July, talk to us before you leave. Uh, we would love to talk more with you. Okay, have a great one. We'll catch you guys next week.